0: That's my king. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's the king of kings, and he's the lord of
1: Lords. That's my king. All right, well, good morning, Second Service. It's great to see all of you here this morning, and it's great to uh, get to share God's Word again. Let me just echo what Josh said. These are two great opportunities on the 26th and 27th. We don't want just a few of you there. We want all of you there, and we would love to see how uh, we can gather our church together to make a difference for the kingdom. And we are in Colossians chapter 2, if you want to turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 today, and I want to make sure that we understand and we remember exactly why Paul wrote the book of Colossians. As we work through this book, we're going to be reminded over and over about these purposes because I don't want you to lose sight in in going chapter to chapter and verse to verse about what the primary goal Paul had was for giving to us and to the people of Laodicea, the people of Hierapolis, the people of Colossae, but also us today. He wrote these things with a goal in mind. And so let me remind us this morning that God's primary goal is that 100% of us in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ not 50%, not 75%, but he wants every one of us, 100% of us, from the oldest to the youngest. doesn't matter, rich, poor. It doesn't matter whether you are a new believer or whether you're a seasoned believer. What he is desiring and what Paul wants for the church, and I believe what Jesus wants for the church is for us to show in our lives that Jesus gets first and he gets the best of who we are that has never changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament God desires God asks of every one of us that we believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ we ended last week with talking about the fact that Christ is preeminent he doesn't just need to be a priority He doesn't just need to have a place in our hearts and lives he needs To be preeminent, which means that he holds first place. That literally our lives are a testimony. Every one of us in this room that claim Christ, a testimony that Jesus is getting the first of us. That he is getting the best of us. Today we're going to press a little further into this letter to the Colossians as he instructs them how to put Jesus first. I want you to think of it like this. If you remember, we said in the beginning that what the Colossians were struggling with was that there were many people trying to tell them what they needed in life and what would make them happy in life. In this Greek culture that they were in, they were surrounded by philosophers. They were surrounded by thinkers. And and, and just like we have today, there were a lot of voices trying to speak into their hearts and lives to tell them what could bring joy, what could bring peace, what could bring fulfillment, where they could find purpose. And Paul is going to say to them, don't lose sight of the only thing that matters amidst all the voices. And that is, it's Jesus plus nothing. They would have said it was Jesus plus something. And most of us in our lives, without thinking, we believe and we act as if... It's Jesus plus something that will bring us joy and happiness. We don't realize that we set up little idols every day that we think, if I don't have this, if I don't have that, then there's no way in my life that I can be content, I can be happy, I can find joy without these things. And Jesus is reminding us, Paul is reminding us, that that mentality of Jesus and is a subtle mentality. They didn't outright discard Jesus. They just thought they needed other stuff in addition to him. And Paul's answer to the Colossians was an emphatic no. If you want the equation, it's simple. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Today we're going to see in this text that Paul has a cause for struggling. He has a cause for rejoicing. He has a cause for concern. He has a cause for celebrating. This is a rich text. Again, this is like last week's text. We literally could camp out here for 10 weeks. Every one of these points we could easily do two weeks on and not get to the bottom of what is there. So we're going to try in a short amount of time today to go through what is one of the most rich Uh, passages of Scripture, and I know that if you will hang in there and listen and allow God to speak, open up your hearts, open up your minds, pray that He will speak to you today. I assure you, there are lots of things in here today that are going to bless you, that are going to change you. So let's begin with reading this text before we get into those four points. In chapter 2, verse 1, here is how the Apostle Paul began. He said, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom all I'm sorry, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your transgressions and, he, and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him." As you can see, we've got a lot to discuss today. But I promise you, I promise you, out of this text and all that is in it, you are going to be blessed today. Let us look, first of all, at Paul's cause for struggling. Paul's cause for struggling. He starts right off the bat and he says to the church, and and I want you to notice he's not speaking necessarily directly to Colossae at this point. I told you that this region of the world, which is in modern-day Turkey, which would have been uh, recognized as as Asia Minor. This is an area where they had, kind of like we have Nightdale, Zebulun, and Wendell. You kind of don't know when you leave one and you reach the other, and they're so interconnected that you really kind of just think of them as one place. That's kind of the way it was there. They had Hierapolis. They had Laodicea. And they had Colossae. And so all of these cities were right there together. So when he was writing one, in some ways, he was writing all of them. And so he goes out of speaking directly to the church at Colossae. And he mentions specifically the church at Laodicea. And so he says, I want you to know how great I have a struggle or how great a struggle I have on your behalf, Colossians, and those who are at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now, his cause for struggle, number one, is this. He longed to see them personally. You see, Paul had a love for the church of Jesus Christ. Where many of us see church as a place that we go, Paul saw the church as people that were his family. These were the people that he loved. These were the people that he cared for. These were the people that literally he was risking his life and he had given up everything to take the gospel to the men and women of the regions, not just in Laodicea, in Colossae, in Hierapolis, but around the known world. And for him, they weren't, they weren't just numbers. They weren't just faceless people. He wanted to know them. But there was a reality that really all of us as pastors and church planners and missionaries face. That the larger the church gets, the harder it is to know and to see people and, and really know them to the depth and the level that we want. And he says for him that for many of them, the struggle begins with the fact that he can't see them. And so he knows and he hears about their struggles. He hears about their difficulties. And his desire is like most of us. He wants to fix it. He wants to help them. He wants to reach out to them. And all he can do in his mind is write this letter to encourage them and to help deepen their faith and strengthen their relationship with Christ. And we know that Paul has already said, I want you to know that I am praying for you constantly. And I don't want you to underestimate what Paul is giving to them. He says, I'm struggling because I want to give you more. But I want you to understand that what he gave them was precious. He prayed. I still believe there's power in the writing of letters to people. I mean, I can't tell you how important it is to write people letters, to share your heart, to sit down and take the time. Any of y'all like getting mail that's not mail that's got bills? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we look at that and we long for that, and we sit there and we read it over and over, and he was an encourager. He wanted these people To know Christ. And so what he says to them, he says, I'm struggling because I want to see you face to face. But he also says, I want to see your hearts encouraged. Encouragement is one of the other great gifts that we give to one another as believers in Jesus Christ. Because when we are discouraged, guess what we need around us? We need people. Things don't typically encourage us. People encourage us. And listen, when we sit around and we are discouraged, Paul says, listen... I am rejoicing. He's literally saying that not only with the rejoicing, but I'm also struggling. Because I know you're hurting. I know that these things are coming in and they're trying to tear apart the church and I want to do more. But listen, I want you to know that in this struggle, I want you as a body of believers to be encouraged. How often are you taking the time to be an encouragement to the people that sit to the right and left of you in this room? that sit on the other side of this room. I want you to realize that one of the greatest callings that you have, what ought to be a struggle for you is, you ought to be able to say, you know what, I care about the church that I'm a part of, I care about the community that I'm a part of, and I see the hurt, and I see the pain, and one of the greatest struggles I have is I want to be there with them. And not only that, I want you to be encouraged. And he's going to do his part to encourage them he goes on, he says, I also struggle, not just because I want to encourage you, but he says, man, I want all of you to be knit together in love. Love in this world is what makes all the difference, isn't it? Most people that are struggling in this life, they're struggling over issues of love between a parent and a child, a spouse and another spouse. The church loving its neighbor. The church loving its enemies. Us loving God. And he says that what I want for all of you is to recognize... That you need encouragement. You have each other. You are there face to face with one another. And he says, listen, I'm struggling because what I want for you more than anything is I want you to be close, locked together in love for one another. And I want you to remember, love isn't just a feeling. Love is an action. And the kind of love that he wanted this church to have was a love that displayed itself in action, a church that is patient, a church that is kind, right? that bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, that doesn't keep record of wrong, that rejoices in righteousness and not in untruth, right? Over and over, all that we have in Corinthians and other places in the Scripture that reminds us what love is, it is an outward action displayed into the lives of people because we're knit together. And he goes on and he mentions one more thing. He says... That he longed for them to attain understanding and true knowledge. Here's the way that he put it. He said that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth. And look at these words. Wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What he's saying is what he's consistently going to say throughout all of his letters is that if you want to really be rich, have Christ. Now, I'm not talking about physically rich. I'm not talking about materially rich. I'm talking about he's saying that everything that you are looking for and longing for is in Christ. And he makes an interesting statement here. He says, I'm struggling because I want you guys to do something. I want you, and listen to what he says, I want you to dig. Isn't that what you do for treasure? Isn't that what you do with a mystery? From the beginning of time, God did something very interesting. Where are all the valuable things in this life? Where do we find them usually? Where do you find diamonds? Where do you find garnets? Where do you find rubies? Where do you find gold? You find all of it buried in the ground. And From the beginning of time, guess what man did? He is recognized. I mean, go back to the creation story. When he describes the Garden of Eden, he describes it by letting you know right off the bat that it's surrounded by these rivers, and he recognizes the rivers by the treasures that are under them. He mentions this river, and that's where they found all the gold. And listen, people throughout time and history have given their lives to find what? To find treasure. It's in our makeup, it's in the way that we've been designed, it's in our DNA. And the thing that treasure is meant to show us is that you will find what your heart is really all about by the things that you treasure. Because whatever you treasure, that's what you're going to give your time to. That's what you're going to give your talent to. That's what you're going to give everything in search of. And listen to what he says. He says, I want you, church... I'm struggling because what I want is yes for you to have this fellowship and this love and this encouragement and know that I'm praying for you and I want to see your face but he's saying I want you to know that the treasure that you have in life isn't anything other than who? than Jesus and if you think it's not important to Jesus then remember how many parables and how many times he would say things like there was a man who went out into a field and he found a treasure and he realized the worth of that treasure and what did he do? He sold everything that he had, and he went and he purchased that field because he knew what was there was more valuable than everything else in his life. I want you to see that what Paul is declaring here is that that is Jesus for us. What did we say? Christ is supreme. Christ is preeminent. Jesus plus nothing equals what? Everything. And he says, man, look at what God has given to us that we can attain understanding. We can attain... Knowledge, God, I mean, it's interesting in Scripture because there's three types of things that are revealed to us. Number one, he says, there are things that I have shown you. And Scripture, in many ways, has given us so many evident things about who God is and what He desires. And so much about God has been clearly revealed to us. And remember, he told us, when I give you these things, remember in the Old Testament, he said, I've given you my word. And when I give you my word, I want you to apply it to yourself, put it into your heart, and then I want you to take it after you have Received it, and I want you to do what with it? I want you to share it, beginning with your children, your family. There's much truth that he gives to us just like that. There's other truths in the Bible that it says that literally God holds them. There are some things, you may not like this, but there are some mysteries and some truths that God holds and we will never understand because we're not God. And he hasn't chosen to reveal it. But then there's this other type of truth, and I believe a lot of this is how we walk with Jesus. Is that Jesus wants to be known, He wants to be understood, He wants to be worshipped, He wants to be served. And listen, all all these things, and a lot of these truths are kind of the third type where God, He buries them, not where they're unfindable, but where you're going to have to do what? You're going to have to dig a little. And you say, why in the world would he make me dig? You know why? Because he wants to know, is it worth it to you? Is it worth it to you to get up early so you can study the Bible? Or stay up late so you can study the Bible? Or set aside a lunch so that you can study the Bible? Is it worth it to you to leave margin in your life so that you have the chance to not only hear from God but to respond to God in prayer to be an intercessor for your family and your friends some of us when we're honest with ourselves we find that you know what I'm going to dig up a million other treasures besides that one and we start to see what's important to us And Paul says, listen, I don't want that for you. I want you to recognize that Christ is the treasure. And when you find him, you have found everything. Dig, 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 church. Secondly, he gives Paul's cause for rejoicing. You see, at the end of verse verse 3, you come into 4, and listen to what he says. He kind of throws it in there, and then you see it pick up again in 8. He says, I say this to you so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. So what he's saying is, listen, there's a world out there that is trying to tell you, guess what? Jesus isn't all that. If you want real joy, find this. If you want real peace, find this. If you want to know what a real relationship is, do this. And on and on it goes, and the world is constantly trying to deceive us. You may not want to realize it. We say there are angels, and I believe there's God, but we don't want to believe that there are demons or a devil that works just as hard to shipwreck our faith trying to deceive us, to get our attention off of what matters most in life, and to get us searching for things and digging for things that aren't treasure at all. He says, I don't want anybody to delude, or it means to deceive in some of your translations, to deceive you with persuasive arguments. Because then he goes on and says, for even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. He says, I am rejoicing. And here it is, to see your good discipline and your stability of your faith in Christ. So what are his causes for rejoicing? He says, I'm rejoicing because you, I see in you already, is what he's saying, the antidote for deception. How it is you can reject the lies and hold on to the truth. The devil from the beginning has been lying to us. He is a smooth talker, he is a liar, and he puts in front of us error that looks so much like truth. We constantly grab the counterfeit. And folks, let me say it to you this way. If you don't know what the truth is, the reason you need to be in the word of God, the reason you need to be in prayer, the reason you need to be part of a church body is so that you can grow in your faith so that you can know the truth because if you don't know the truth, you will buy every lie thrown at you. And he's saying, "Listen, I rejoice because that's not you." And he says, "I look at your good discipline." He's not talking about, you know, discipline like we think of with children. He's not even thinking about here discipline like we think of, like the spiritual disciplines where we talk about Bible study and prayer. He's not talking about things like giving and all all those things. When they heard this word discipline in their original language, what it meant for them, and I think it can entail those things, but what they heard when they heard that in the Greek was they heard Paul say that word discipline, it was a military term. It's where he talks about standing firm or being steadfast in the next part as well, where he says, you know, that you have good discipline and you're standing firm or you're steadfast in the faith. It's that idea that that a military army, there is strong, because see, we think about bombs and rockets and, and we do warfare in a completely different way today. Back then it was man to man, it was face to face, right? And so it mattered that you had a strong line offensively, defensively. And the greatest danger was that when the enemy came, that the line would begin to break down, right? That some would begin to retreat while others tried to hold the line. And it's that picture, it's that military term that these believers had good discipline. They stood arm in arm when the enemy attacked and they didn't run when the problems got too great? Now see, let that sink in a second. What is the natural inclination of a man when the trouble seems too great? We want to turn and run. Fear makes us turn and run. Shame makes us turn and run. Guilt makes us... Turn and run. Tragedy makes us turn and run. And he says, I rejoice because what I see is a group of believers that have good discipline. That rather than running, what do they do? They stand. And they stand firm together. You think it's important in a body of believers that we have others that we can stand with? You can't win wars by yourself, church. You can't win battles by yourself, church. And we keep trying, and we keep trying, and we keep trying, and we can't want, we, we can't figure out why we live so defeated. He rejoiced about their discipline. But it said he also rejoiced about their walk. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, and this is an interesting statement. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You need to understand both sides of that. We usually stop and grab, walk with him. But you can't understand what he's meaning unless you grab what he said before that. Therefore, if everything we just talked about is true, listen to what he says. Let me say it again. As you have received Christ... So walk in him. So he's saying that every day that you are walking with Jesus, you need to walk with him as if it was the first day. Let me ask you a question. In marriage, wives, don't you sometimes wish our husbands would walk with us the way they did the first day? Yeah. That's true for all of us. That's not a slam on them. That's, that's, That's all of us. Does anybody not feel that way? Because the greatest danger is that we start to live differently than the way that we committed, than the way that we know is healthy and good in our circumstances and our problems. And all of life starts to bear down on us and things begin to change, even in our relationships with those that we say we love the most. And the antidote to that kind of deception that it has to be that way is to go back and do the things you did in the beginning. And he's rejoicing because he says, That's what you seem to be doing. You're, you're walking in Christ like you did in the beginning. You say, Well, what does that mean? Well, I want you to think about when you first came to Christ. That was the moment where you laid aside pride and you humbled yourself. That was the moment when you stopped saying, I can do this. I've got this. I will handle this, God. And you said to him, I'm a dead man walking if you don't do something. I I, I bring nothing to the table. I have nothing worthy of you saving me and transforming me. I come back to you, God, and I'm telling you, without you, I am nothing. Most of us, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we forget that's true. When you were a new believer, you were very cognizant of the sin that was in your life. When we've been a believer for a while, you know how easy it is to just say a prayer like, Lord Jesus, if I sinned today, I don't know if I have, but if I have, I pray that you'll forgive me. And everybody around you is going, I can name a few. But we don't want to be real with Jesus, do we? We learn very quickly in our Christian walk that it's easier to put up a facade and to wear a mask and to become hypocrites. And hypocrites isn't sinning. Hypocrites is acting like you don't sin. You understand the difference. You're not a hypocrite because you sin. There's not one of us in this room that's not going to struggle in sin. Don't let the world, because the world's going to look at you and whisper, this is the thing. They're deceiving you. They're trying to say, oh, if you sin, I don't come to church because the church is filled with hypocrites. No, the church is filled with people that recognize, hopefully, their sinfulness and are coming to the great physician who can heal them and trying to invite everybody else to the same physician. That's not living hypocritically. But when we start putting on a mask, We start acting like we don't sin, acting like we're better than everybody else. Now we're dealing with hypocrisy. You understand the difference? He says, Go back and walk with Jesus like you did in the beginning, just as you received him. He says, Keep going. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not on man. Keep looking to his grace by faith. Quit looking at your own strength and your own power. Keep walking the way that you did the first day you met Jesus. If you haven't heard it in a few weeks, because I say it all the time, I'm going to say it again. You need his grace and mercy today as much as you have ever needed it in your life. He also rejoiced about their stability. If you noticed, he goes on and he says of their stability, he says, you've received Christ as Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I want you to see what he says. He says that as believers, he says, I'm rejoicing because I can see in you that you're putting down deep roots. You're growing in your faith. You are living in a way that you love the word of God. You are praying. You are part of a body where you're growing. You're woven together, right? You're knit together. And all the things that he's mentioned... And he says, and I look at you in this moment, and what I recognize, he says two things. He uses two different illustrations. One, agrarian, which is basically, he's saying you're like a tree that has set down roots. And now that you have roots, as you begin to build on top of those roots, you become strengthened because of what's under the ground, the things that no one sees, right? That time that you have with God, he says, you have become firmly established. He uses another illustration. He says you're built up. It's the idea that what you need to have an edifice or a building is you need that strong foundation, right? And when you have that strong foundation, now you can take those products and you can begin to build and it can support the weight. And he's saying, listen, I see in you that you are being edified. I see in you that your faith has taken root and that you are strong and that you have become established. That's what Matthew chapter 7 meant when he said, listen, I see in you that you hear the word of God, and not only do you hear it, but you do it. You obey it, and when you're a hearer and you're an obeyer, guess what? He says you are building on rock. Let the storms come. Let the winds rage. Let the floods rise, and he says, you know what? At the end of all of it, that house is going to stand. He says, but if you're not a hearer and a doer, if you're not even hearing because you're not even in the Word, and you're not even beginning to do because you never even pray to Him, and it never shows itself in the way that you live, He says, don't be fooled. He says, you're like the person who built a house on sand. There is no firm foundation. There is no root. And whatever you've built on top of that, guess what's going to happen? It's coming down. And he says, I rejoice. He sees in them this rootedness and that they are established. And he's rejoicing over their discipline, over their walk with Christ, over their stability. And I love the last one. It just says he's rejoicing because they rejoice, he rejoiced about their rejoicing. Because he said, here are a people, what I love about what is going on in you and why you're able to withstand the deception and why you're standing strong in the midst of this world that's screaming all these things at you. He says, because you are a people who have gratitude. You're thankful. You say, well, what does it have to do with what Paul is going towards? Well, listen, it's very simple. They should be overflowing with gratitude. And listen, it is easy for the enemy to work with an embittered, grumbling person. If you're an embittered, grumbling person, listen, you are ripe for deception. You're going to believe everything the devil whispers in your ear because you're embittered, because you're complaining, because you're grumbling consistently and constantly. It's easy for him to see you further, to cast doubt on the goodness of God. But I'll tell you this, I've found that it isn't easy for the devil to get very far with a person whose heart is thankful and whose heart is overflowing with gratitude, who has understood that, you know what, the Bible meant it when it said that you can rejoice when you go through various trials because you realize they're deepening your faith. They're deepening your ability to endure. Number three, Paul's cause for concern. He has the cause for struggle, the cause for rejoicing. He goes back to the cause for concern in verse 8. I told you 4 and 8 kind of go together. And he says in this verse, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now that word captive there is he's saying, Listen, there are those that want to kidnap you. Another way to put it is there are those that want to take you Hostage. Their intentions for you are not good. I can assure you of this. Everything that God has commanded, everything that God has given to you, whether you think it's legalistic, whether you think it's a command that he ought not, I want to assure you that as you look at the Bible, every command that he has given to you is for you. And for your good. He's the one who created you. He knows what's good for you. And you think you know what's good for you, so you put diesel fuel in a car that don't run on diesel, and you can't figure out why the engine's dead, and you can say to God, "Well, I think diesel's better." He's like, "Well, okay, throw it in there. Let's see what happens. Why don't you add a little sugar in there?" He made us. He loves us. He died for us. He's given us life. You think he's not going to tell us those things that are good and right and holy? He says, listen, if you're not careful, people are going to kidnap you through philosophy and empty deception. Now, we understand that deception is everywhere in the world, right? You can't go two minutes in this life without someone trying to deceive you. There's Ponzi schemes, right? Where they want to sell you something that you know is too good to be true. When something's too good to be true, it's probably not. How many of you have gotten a letter from Zimbabwe and you have found out, luckily for you, they have billions of dollars waiting. All they need is your bank account. Politicians, they live on deception. That's how they get elected school boards. On and on we go, no matter where you look in this life and look in this world, we are constantly trying to be deceived. You look at the radio, you look at the television, you look at the internet, all of it has in its intention to deceive you to grab hold of something that is absolutely a lie that will not bring you what you think, right? Take this pill, you lose 50 pounds in two weeks. We've got this brand new piece of equipment in 2,000 years no one has thought of until we did, and it's going to help you lose 100 pounds in the next two months. Spiritually, the world is trying to do the same thing to us. He says that the reason, and this is why Paul is concerned, he says, listen, people are trying to take you captive, and here's how they're doing it, with empty deception and with philosophy. Now what does it mean to be taken captive, and how does he take us captive? Literally what he's saying is he starts with those two things. Empty deception, if you want to know what that is, that's when you go to Food Lion and you buy a bag of chips. And you think this is an awesome bag of chips, look how big this is, and you open it, and what do you find? I mean, it ain't even half a pack anymore. I opened one the other day, it was like a third, it was Cheetos, and I'm like, really? That's empty deception. And how many times does the world promise us things that are empty deception? You know what? You need sex outside of marriage. you got to get to know the person. No. The problem is you're probably not going to be with that person the rest of your life. And now you've taken the gift that God intended for one woman and one man to be given to each other. And now someone else has that gift. And they've left you. And they've walked away from you. And you may do that three, four, five times. And by the time you get to marriage... there's emptiness. There's such pain and misery and distrust that we go to the marriage altar and we don't even know how to love, really. I mean, God has to do a huge restoration in us, and we thought... That that was what we needed because you know it's important that we get to know each other before we get married and we just ignore and fly by everything God says to get what we want. And the world says we want, and we open the bag, and all that's left at the bottom is a broken heart. That's how he deceives us. Pornography is better than sex outside of marriage. No, it's not. (laughs) Do you know people believe that lie? That'll push down the urges until I get married, and then I'll get married, and I'll be able to have sex, and it won't matter at that point. It don't work that way. You don't see your spouse the way that you should anymore. You don't realize how much you've devalued women in your own heart and mind, men. And men in your own heart and mind, women. And you find out you're so dysfunctional over all the years of looking at stuff like that that it hasn't helped your marriage. You open the bag and you realize there's nothing but broken pieces in there. Paul says, listen, to what my concern is, these, this empty deception Empty deception, if you want the most simple definition besides a bag of chips, I don't know if I can make it any simpler than that, but it's something that promises so much but delivers nothing. And the world is constantly feeding you that. And he says also, be careful because the reason you're kidnapped is because of different philosophy that's out there. Now, philosophy in the Greek word, it's very similar in English. It's philosophia, okay? Sophia meaning wisdom, philo meaning love. So, the love of wisdom. And you think to yourself, well, why would Paul have an issue with us loving wisdom? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that wisdom is important? Doesn't it say? I mean, he literally said up in the earlier chapters that we should obtain all knowledge and all wisdom. So, why is it that now we have to worry about this love of wisdom? It's because in this world, there are two types of wisdom. That's the problem. There is worldly wisdom and there is biblical wisdom. There is godly wisdom. And you have to choose which wisdom it is that you are going to seek in this life. Oprah or Jesus? Dr. Phil or Jesus? Your next door neighbor or Jesus? Because you've got to pick a voice. And you got to believe and figure out who it is that you believe and who you trust. And Paul is saying, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And you're, you're choosing this man-centered philosophy. If you look at the history of philosophy throughout the world, what began as wisdom trying to understand who God is has become over millennia that God is removed from the equation and now who do we care about? just ourselves. Philosophy today is as humanistic as it can be. God has been ushered out the door. That's why it's scary to send our kids to universities, isn't it? See, it was no different in Paul's day because there were philosophers all over. There were these teachers all over the place. And no matter where you went, throw a rock, you'd hit a philosopher. But the problem with those philosophers of that day in Greek culture was they had steadily begun moving God out of the way. And the Greek philosophers, whenever they would come against the gospel, they would say the gospel's laughable. This idea that Jesus was God in the flesh who came to earth, remember the Gnostics, they would have said that's foolishness, matters bad. Spiritual is good. There's no way Jesus was... And all these things that kept coming down, and whenever they would talk about the gospel, they would talk about Jesus, they would be mocked, they would be laughed at, they would say, that is stupid that you would believe such a thing. And folks, it was no different in that day than it is in our day. Go try to sell the gospel in a college campus. Watch everybody go crazy from the administration. It hasn't changed from then. It hasn't changed to now. Paul is saying, why would you look elsewhere instead of looking at Christ Jesus? If you keep listening to the philosophy of men, you're going to get sucked into and you're going to be left with Jesus plus something instead of Jesus plus nothing. So he says, don't be taken hostage. Recognize the danger that you are in when you accept worldly ways. And folks, if you want to know when it's worldly ways, it's in those moments when you say to yourself, and you know it, and you know it, and you know it, when someone tries to tell you what is right, and you say, I know what the Bible says, and what's the next word? That's when you know. That you're about to buy the lie you're telling yourself or the lie that the world has told you. And you're about to be deceived. I know what the Bible says, but... I know what it says about marriage, but... I know what it says about divorce, but I know what it says about pornography, but I know what it says about alcoholism, but I know what it says about... but. that's when you know you're being deceived. And so it's accepting worldly, human, fleshly ways instead of seeking Christ and what he has said will bring you life. And lastly, and and really most importantly, Paul's cause for celebration. What was rejoicing a minute ago, this is going to go into full-on celebration for the Apostle Paul because he's going to give us in the next six verses some of the most beautiful scripture that we have in all the Bible because he's going to show us exactly who we are in Jesus Christ. And he's saying to you, you know what, you can listen to the world or you can listen to what I'm about to tell you. You can believe what you want to believe or you can believe what God says because he says, let me tell you who you are in Christ. Let me tell you why you are complete in Christ. Let me tell you why that if your identity is in Christ, then everything for you changes now and for eternity. And so he begins in verse 9, for in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, let me just give you a little answer into why, what that means. That is saying, this is one of the best verses in all of the Bible. If somebody ever tries to tell you that Jesus isn't the Son of God who took on flesh, that He isn't God Himself, then you need to look at them and you need to read this verse. In Him, Jesus, what? All the fullness of God. So that means whatever God is, so is Jesus. And it dwells How? in bodily form, that God became what? Man. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently than that. He's not just a philosopher. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a moral leader. He's not any of those things. He is the Son of God who took on flesh. And this is where he goes. He says, so this Jesus that all these people around you are trying to minimize... And make less and tell you you need more? He's saying, no, no, no. The fullness of deity dwells in him. And listen to what it says. And in him, you have been made complete. Now, we could camp out for another 50 minutes right here. Let me put it to you simply. Everything that you ever need, you are if you are in Christ. Remember, Jesus plus nothing equals what? Everything. He says you are complete. That idea of completeness in the Bible means basically that you've become fully mature. And you see, we look at ourselves in the world, we want to say, you know what, I'm not mature. I'm still struggling in my walk with Jesus. I want you to understand that, yes, while you're struggling with Jesus, the promise has never changed. That from the moment He saved you, what did He tell you? That if I begin a good work in you, I will be faithful to what? Complete it. That's telling you that it's already a what? Done deal. Now, in this journey that we're in, we have the ups and downs, don't we? We see the struggles. We see the sins that we still commit. But I want you to know that while the rest of the world wants to tell you, see, you're not a believer. See, you're just a hypocrite. See, Jesus didn't forgive you. See, there's no power in Jesus. See this. See that over and over. You look at them, and you can say with all assurance, let me tell you why I can celebrate. Because this God who is the fullness of God, or this Savior who is the fullness of God in bodily form, in Him, I'm complete. And you may not see it today for what it will be, but there will be a day when I breathe my last breath, and guess what's going to happen? He's going to make me just like He is. And what looks to you like it's been undone, He will finish, and He will do it. And forever, I will never have to wrestle or deal with sin again. You see, when you realize that you're complete in Christ, you'll quit acting as if, Sin is something that you just have to do. And you'll start to realize, no, He's actually making me holy. He's actually growing me in my faith. And this process between the day I was saved and the day that I die, He is making me more and more like Jesus. And so when I do struggle, guess what I can do? I can go to Jesus and I can confess my sin because this Jesus is faithful and just to what? Forgive me of my sin and He can cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And he can pick me up, and he can brush me off, and he can make me holy, and he can set me back down, and he's going to go, let's keep going. He is over there going, good luck. He's right beside you, walking with you. And when you stumble, he's there. And when you confess it, he cleanses you, and he forgives you. We are complete in Christ, but he also says we are free in Christ. Now, boy, this is some amazing stuff here because in verse 11 he says, and in him, so here's that same statement, in him you were complete, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision without hands. Remember in the Old Testament, a child on the eighth day, if they were a Jewish child, they were dedicated to the Lord, and they were circumcised, an outward physical sign that they were of the covenant community. He says that as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been made free because what circumcision was in the Old Testament was an identification with the God of Israel, an identification that they were Jewish, that they were God's chosen people. It was an outward sign of what was supposed to be happening inward, inside of them. And it was their identity. If you saw a child or saw someone, else, you knew immediately that they identified with Yahweh. And here's what he says. You have a circumcision that isn't with hands. It's not physical the surgical procedure that we talk about. But he's saying rather than it being the physical procedure that we think of in Scripture, he says it's a circumcision of the Spirit. It's a circumcision that Christ does inside of you, and he says that the visible outward manifestation of it is what? Baptism. In the New Testament, we don't circumcise. In the New Testament, what do we do? We baptize. And when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, your first act of obedience is to identify with Him and to stand in front of a body of believers in the watching world and to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I am His. He is mine. I've been saved. And I want you to think about what baptism actually symbolizes. When you're baptized, I mean, I want you to see this. You're identifying with Christ. Because Christ died, and think about what Galatians says. Think about what Paul would say there in Galatians 2.20. He would say, just as Christ died, I am also what? Crucified with Christ. So when we're baptized, that's why we take a person, we sit them in that pool, and we take them under the water. The water represents the grave. And when a person goes under the water, they are identifying with Jesus that the day he died, guess what? I died too. I wasn't born yet but he took all of the sins that I would commit and he took my punishment and my penalty and on that day all of my sin was placed on him and I identify with Christ that in his death I died too. And we go under the water and then what happens? We come up representing what? The resurrection of Christ. That we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we've been what? We've been made alive with Christ. Those of us who were condemned, we come up out of that water. It symbolizes that, you know what, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We are reminded that if God raised him from the dead, he'll raise us from the dead. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that resides in us in the Holy Spirit of God. And that power sets us free from sin, sets us free from death, sets us free from the grave. Let that sink in. And he says, You are complete. And he says, You're free. In him, you who were circumcised with circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Do you see the picture? Our baptism represents our freedom. It means that as I stand before God one day, I'm going to stand completely righteous and completely whole. Because I identify with Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And the righteousness that he had was given to me. And you say, well, what about all the sin? I'm glad you asked. We're forgiven in Christ. H.I. Ironside records a story and a conversation between Socrates and Plato. If you remember Aristotle, all these guys lived during this time and were into this Greek, and all in this Greek philosophy. He says, one day Socrates and Plato were arguing concerning the forgiveness of sin. And he said that Socrates turned to Plato. And this is what he said to Plato. He said, it may be that God can forgive sins, but I don't see how. You ever feel that way? Has anyone ever shared the gospel with you and you thought to yourself, I don't think God can forgive my sins? How in the world can God take the sins of humanity upon himself? What does that even look like? And for Socrates, what a shame that he doesn't know the answer. That if he'd looked right here in the book of Colossians, he would see that God provides an answer. How can a man be forgiven of his sins? Look at what it says. When you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven what? All. What does all mean? (laughs) All. Every sin. Every sin that you've ever committed by faith in Christ, he took your sin to that cross. All of your sins can be forgiven. How? Becomes the question he answers the question he says your sins having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he took it out of the way having nailed it to the cross you see this is one of the most beautiful aspects of the story of salvation it says that all of us back in those days if you committed a crime they would put you in a jail cell and above your jail cell they would put a certificate of debt they would list what your crimes were and then they would say this is the punishment for the crime and you would sit there until the price was fully paid now I want you to think with me for a second as we stand before God one day How big of a stack do you think we're going to have of certificates of debt? That means every sin that you've committed in thought, in word, in action. Every sin that you've ever committed, you thought it was against somebody else, it was ultimately against God. And I want you to think about how big a stack that's going to be. You take any one of those slips of paper, and you look at it, and it's going to say, he lied, she lied on this day about this topic and this issue. And you look at the penalty line, what is it going to say? Well, without Jesus, what's it going to say? The penalty is death. And you don't have one of those. you got how many? (laughs) And you know what the Bible says? This is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus took all of that stack, not just for you, but for me. And not just for me, but for every person in Wendell and Nightdale and Zebulun and North Carolina and the U.S. and the world. And it said that the wage of those sins was what? Death. You wonder why Jesus went to the cross? He took carrying our debt with Him. That's why at the end of His life, when He died on that cross, He used a very specific word, to "Die." in the Greek. Last things that He said, tetelestai simply means it's finished. It's the same Greek word that they would put on those certificate of debts when the price was paid and when you were set free to telestai. Paid in full. It's finished. I want you to think of how glorious our God is that He took all of that and He placed it on His Son who would die in our place so that our debt could be paid in full. And we can stand before God one day, and I can say, not only did Jesus take all my sin, but he put all of his righteousness into my account, and now I'm forgiven, and I'm free, and I'm alive, and I'm complete because of my faith in Jesus. He did all of this for me. And he finishes with, in verse 15. After he canceled our debt, having nailed it to the cross, he says we're triumphant in Christ. Because I want you to know that once the sin's been paid for, it can never be brought to your account again. There's no double jeopardy, is there? The devil may sit there and he may want to tell you over and over, you're a sinner. You know what? Look at him and say, brother, I'm a saint. I'm a saint. Christ has set me apart. He has saved me. And the sins that I've committed, they were forgiven. Let me again remind you, how many of your sins were committed before you were born? And were forgiven. How many sins were forgiven before you were born? All of them. You hadn't committed any when Jesus died, had He? I don't know why we struggle with that concept. That from the day you drew your first breath, you began sinning, but you had the opportunity for salvation by faith in Christ. And He has forgiven every sin before you ever even took the sin, before you ever did the sin. And he says, Will you just believe? Will you receive this gift of eternal life? Will you accept what I've done for you? And believe it. And live it. Because he says, Every enemy is done. You are triumphant. All the rulers, all the authorities, when the devil wants to whisper in your ear what a loser you are because you struggle in sin, you just whisper back, I'm his child and He's changing me, and He's transforming me, and He's going to finish what He started in me. And keep walking with Jesus. Because the grave can't touch you, death can't touch you, your sin can't touch you. And you actually have power over all of those things now. As you musicians come, I hope I can just give you a visual as we close As to what this looks like in our lives as a believer, F.B. Meyer, who was a contemporary of D.L. Moody and others, he told the story of two German men who wanted to climb Matterhorn. If you don't know what Matterhorn is, Matterhorn is one of the largest mountains in the Swiss Alps, one of the hardest to climb. It's located kind of right between uh, uh, um, Italy and Spain. And these two men knew that there was no way they could climb the mountain alone. They had never climbed it. When you'd climb mountains like Everest and and mountains like Matterhorn, what you need is a guide, right? And so they went and they hired three different guides. And when they began to climb the mountain, it was interesting because of the way they staggered the men. They put the most experienced guide up first, the best guide. And he went first, and then he was tied to a rope to one of the two German travelers who was then tied to a rope to another guide, who was then tied to a rope with the other traveler, who was then tied to a rope with another guide. So it was guide, traveler, guide, traveler, guide. Those men began climbing the mountain, and they began to realize very quickly just how steep and just how slippery the slopes were. And they said the back guide, they hadn't even gone very far. He slipped. And when he slipped, the other men were able to hold him in place for a moment. But after a few moments, it said that the next man lost his footing and lost his handhold. And he not only slipped and began to fall, but he actually took out the middle guy and the next guy. And so what you were left with was one guide, the most experienced guide who thankfully had driven in his spike so deep and was holding so tight that literally he was able to hold all four of those men long enough for them to gain their footing and to get back on track. And of course, the people that were listening to F.B. Meyer, they said, well, what does that story have to do with us? And he said, it's very simple. He said, I'm like one of those men who slipped. He said, But thank God that I am bound in a living relationship to Jesus Christ. And because He stands firm, I'll never perish. And you see, that's how most of us feel most days. We slip, don't we? Sometimes we leave our family dangling there. Our slip causes them to lose grip. (laughs) And aren't you glad that at the end of the day, it's Jesus who's holding tight to that rock? And I want you to know that He will stand firm, and because you're identified with Him, folks, you'll never perish. Father, we just thank you for the goodness of your word. Lord, as we gather here today, we recognize how desperately we need you. And Father, I just pray that as we go into this moment, you would help us to cry out to you, Lord. You've spoken today. You've revealed yourself today in your word in one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that is in the Bible. And Lord, what a tragedy it would be for us to leave this place unchanged if we left this place and didn't even take three minutes to, to talk back, to confess, to surrender, to renew our walk with you, to remember, to worship, to celebrate all that you are to us. Lord, there may be someone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. The gospel Is all over this text, and I pray that today they would stop striving to find a way to save themselves, and they would know that they're powerless to do it. They can't change. They can't be transformed unless they place their faith in you. So, Father, you ask of them that they repent and turn from their sins and follow you. Lord, you ask that they believe that Jesus, you died on the cross for their sins. You gave to them your righteousness. You were buried and you rose on the third day. And Lord, because of that, we identify with you. And we are now victorious over the grave and death and sin. And we can have life. And Lord, you ask us to surrender. So Lord, wherever they are right now, I just pray that they would pray and ask you. To forgive their sins and to change them and to surrender their lives to you, believing that you have accomplished their salvation on Calgary's cross. And Lord, for the rest of us that are here, God, speak to our hearts. Make sure, Lord, that we find ourselves in this body locked arm in arm with other believers not out there so easily picked off by the world because we're trying to do this alone. Father, I pray that you would knit us together in love. That we would dig together to have an understanding of you. Lord, we need you in this moment. We need you in this hour. And Father, you're waiting for your people to respond. So Lord, as the musicians play, Lord, let us pray. And may you find our words to be true. Our commitment to be real, and Lord, may you begin to take steps to change and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.
0: That's my king. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king.